Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. In Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. In the spirit of the holiday season, today I want to highlight four of my favorite gifts. My team. I'm speaking of producers Summer Evans and Janine Etter, engineer Shelley Canavy, and senior producer Kim Drobes. Aside from their daily help behind the scenes on City Lights, they also contribute to the diverse stories we bring you. I asked each of them to choose their favorite self-produced story of 2022, and the result is today's Producers' Picks show. First up is an offering from producer Summer Evans. Summer joined the City Lights team as a recent college graduate in 2018, and it has been a delight to watch her grow into the seasoned producer she is today. Although Summer appreciates many art forms, her love of photography shines brightest, and her choice for our producer pick show reflects that. In January, Summer spoke with the acclaimed fashion photographer Robert Ferrer in connection with his Scadfash exhibition, Backstage Pass. Although the show has since ended, you can still see Ferrer's work on his website's behind-the-scenes archive section. Summer began with Ferrer's insider view of the fashion world. In the late 90s, you started out as one of the only people to go backstage of a fashion show and take photographs of the models and the chaos that was occurring behind the scenes. What inspired you to do this? Well, when I first started, I was actually shooting the runway. So I was at the end of the catwalk with many other photographers. And, and that was wonderful. It was great. I, I, I loved doing it. But at a certain point, it wasn't really challenging anymore. And then one day I saw somebody disappearing off just before a show and, and disappearing behind the curtain, so to speak, down the runway and, and off where the, uh, the girls would come out. And I sort of was a bit curious and thought, oh, I, I need, to, need to see what's going on back there. 
And, uh, and so I, I ran along, had a look, and I, it's just this new world that opened up to me. It was incredible. Um, I think I've said many times, you know, you go back there as a photographer or somebody with an artistic eye and you just see creativity everywhere you look. So I ran back, got my camera and basically stayed backstage from that point onwards. Um, I loved it. It was a sort of a curiosity and a natural progression, I think, from, from the runway. I, I was fascinated by the fashion, but backstage I was actually able to get up close and personal, see it those few seconds before the editors might see it. And, uh, and obviously from a photographic point of view, um, I was able to document it in a personal way. I mean, it's, it's wonderful to see it on the runway, but you're essentially taking a similar photograph to, to many other people, whereas backstage, everything you do, certainly at that point, was, was very individual and you could, you could actually create something of your own style. I noticed there's like a mixture of playfulness from the models that you just don't get when you see them on the runway and they have to really turn it on and be serious and everything. Uh, you're right. I mean, it's, it's possibly in the last few years, it, it's gone even more extreme that way with uh, girls being told to have no expression, walk fast, follow each other at exactly the same distance. And it, it's, it's become a bit of, in some cases, a very automated. Robotic. Process. Yeah, robotic's a good word, exactly. I mean, in the earlier days, I suppose, before I ever heard of a fashion show, you know, they'd sashay down the, the runway. They might be introduced by the designer sort of saying, this is look number 71 on Sasha. And they'd, you know, wander in and out of the chairs and turn a little bit. And I believe that Chanel did something similar to that this season at the Spring Summer 2022 show um, with photographers around the catwalk as well, sort of harking back to, to the sort of 70s and 80s. And the girls then... I guess had a lot more personality and they would spin and, and interact with the audience. Um, from my time, pretty much, apart from perhaps a Galliano show or a Dior show, you know, the girls were fairly ordered and controlled's the wrong word, but you know, they were given instructions on, on how to how to behave. Of course, backstage, depending on what they're wearing uh, and depending on what show they were doing, the girls needed to have some character. And certainly when they got into those dresses, they took on a personality because you know the clothes are just so wonderful that you 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 feel, you know, you know how you feel when you get dressed into especially when you're going out. You know, you're gonna you you feel a certain way, you stand a certain way, you you know, you might look in the mirror and sort of turn your shoulders and look over your back and, you know, admire how this dress is floating out behind you. In many cases, uh, in the images, you know, there, there's a personality coming through or a persona, maybe the dress's persona coming through in the images. But certainly, certainly at those four design houses, you know, the girls would automatically have fun, in a sense. Is this why you wanted to exhibit photos from this era, which ranges from the late 90s to the early 2000s, because of the personality that's shown through in well, these photographs? I, you know, I think Sally Singer said it very well um, when she said it, it was a golden age, a sort of zeitgeist uh, for fashion. And, and also it's a vanished world because then it was a very private world. Very few people would, would see it. You know, the dresses, the designers, the hair and makeup, perhaps, uh, and a few photographers, not, not many, but now you know, that's gone and you're virtually seeing the clothes backstage before they're even shown on the catwalk. And in some cases, you know, they'll be, they'll be out there on, on social media so, so quickly. I love the idea of, of sharing these images which haven't been seen before. I mean, I've shot 
millions of images over the years. And, uh, you know, when I was working with Vogue and Harper's Bazaar and British Elle, you know, they could only publish a handful. I mean, it's very expensive. You know, page in a magazine costs a lot to produce. And between the adverts and, um, and, and the articles they have to write, you know, there aren't, sounds crazy, but there aren't loads of pages that they can fill with, with fashion imagery. You know, a magazine can only be so big. So I might, if I was lucky, get maybe a um, hundred, 70, 100 images published each season. And this leaves tens of thousands of images left unseen, you know, sort of stuffed away in boxes. I mean, it's very organized, but uh, but still, you know, they are in boxes. And uh, if we're not showing them in exhibitions and places, they're just going to stay in those boxes. That's really cool. I didn't even think about it that these photos wouldn't have circulated through social media or been printed. So these are never before seen photos of backstage fashion shows. I wouldn't say they have all never been seen before, <laughs> but obviously mm -hmm. they're in the books. But certainly the vast majority, I'd say 90% of the images that are out there have not been seen before in a wider environment than the books that we've recently published, yeah. Mm -hmm. What I thought was really cool was seeing these fashion shows from the early 2000s and how trends are so cyclical, you know, like we've come full circle with now it's trendy for color blocking and wearing jumpsuits and the knee-high lace boots. Was this intentional when showing the, these photographs from this era and how it is so similar to what's trending currently? Absolutely not. No, I think we were just going through and choosing what we felt was relevant and would work together and, and what sort of attracted the eye. So no, there's no, from, from my point of view, there was no educational purpose in that sense bearing in mind that the backstage my backstage career let's call it I stopped that in about 2012 and stepped away from the fashion shows at the moment I'm going back into it again um, we've been working quite a bit with Fendi recently which has, has been an incredible experience with Kim Jones but in terms of looking in that cyclical way no I don't from my point of view it wasn't an intention but certainly one of the one of the main reasons for getting these images out is to to share it with students and fashion lovers around the world and allow them to have a glimpse into the world that I was privileged enough to um to inhabit for a you know a good 15 years or so well, it is cool. For me, I found a connection because I have a jumpsuit very similar to the one I saw in the photograph. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's from 20 years ago. Very cool that I'm now well, wearing fashion very similar to that. <laughs> but what people need to learn as well, I mean, just taking that and twisting it around a little bit. I mean, I know obviously the the, the clothing that's shown in, in this show, for the most part, you know, they're, they're very luxury items, um, certainly in the case of McQueen, Galliano and, and Dee. You know, they're, they're, they're out of the price range of, of, of most people. Uh, Mark Jacobs is also obviously a very luxury label, but perhaps not quite at the price point of the others, especially, you know, as they're now, in many cases, museum pieces. But it just does go to show that people can recycle. You can buy nicely once. You can keep it, you know, for 10, 15 years. If it's in fashion this year and it sort of peters out, then maybe in three or four years time, it'll come back. So you don't have to go out and buy new, buy fast fashion. You know, you can actually build up a, a beautiful wardrobe over the years and, and, you know, bring things back in when they come back into fashion or maybe 
bring them back into fashion yourself. You know, those lace-up knee-high boots you're talking about or your jumpsuit, <laughs> perfect example. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Or you could raid your mother's closet. It's probably back in. <laughs> that's the best thing to do, of course. Very cool. So one of the more somber photos was of Alexander McQueen, who sadly died by suicide in 2010. And the photo you took, Robert, was one year prior. It's a very lively photo. He's wearing a purple bunny suit and his head mask is off. And he's just like grinning ear to ear at a model and kind of like surprise model like, hey, it's me, Alexander McQueen. And she's looking back at him like, oh, my gosh. Um, <laughs> when you were deciding on the photos you wanted to print for this show, how did you feel when you looked back on that one? I remember that moment really well. I mean, that was a show, and I always get this wrong, but I believe it was natural distinction, unnatural selection. And it was in Paris. It was a venue that uh, it was the first time he'd shown in this particular venue. And as the girls walked up this ramp to the catwalk area, there was a big uh, earth being projected onto the wall behind them. And they were walking up through these stuffed animals. I mean, giraffes, lions, polar bears. And they were flanking the side of the runway. I guess the irony of him in his playful bunny suit uh, running up at the end of the show to take his bow with, you know, this funny bunny hat on or head on was, you know, a very strong message to, to the world. But the reason I wanted to include this is his fantastic smile. I think many people have, you know, th this, is, this is a designer who I met on many occasions backstage at his shows, occasionally at parties in, 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 in London around. But whenever I, I saw him, he was obviously at his most pressured, um, you know, six months worth of creation is about to be unveiled to the world. You've got to get it right. Um, there are always challenges at, at shows, things going wrong backstage, last minute panics. So, you know, it wasn't a moment to, to, to be getting to know somebody. And he was always so focused on what he was doing and such a, a perfectionist for every detail. He would be on the clothes before they went out on the runway, making sure everything was perfect. Um, dresses backstage would be being stitched up until the last minute to get them just right and fitted to the girls. It was uh, a very, very intense atmosphere. And I think this for me just shows that joy, the elation, the relief, the, the happiness that he was feeling at that moment. And also I wanted to show that many people would see him as, I guess, an incredibly intense, maybe angry, maybe brooding person. But there's another side to him. Mm -hmm. And this is yeah. it. No, I really loved that photograph. It was, it was a, like you said, it was a beautiful side to see of him that we might not often see in like the normal photographs, so the posed ones, you know, for media conferences and that sort of thing. So exactly. I mean, the, the things you would see in the media, uh, which were far more posed would be very intense, I would say. So this is just showing the, the yeah the lighter side of 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 uh, an Alexander McQueen that I witnessed. Hmm. Robert, lastly, what do you want the students and those that come to the exhibit to take away from these photographs when seeing the other side of the models and the chaos that ensues backstage? Well, as I said before, I want them to see this this vanished or vanishing vanishing world that that I was fortunate enough to to roll around in for for a few years. 
I want them to see the beauty of the designs. I want them to understand in a way, especially the students, that you can't do these things by yourself, that it's all about teamwork. Um, you know, there were, there were sometimes large and sometimes very, very small, but intense groups of people helping to create, you know, these wonderful experiences, um, the show designers, the casting directors, all the people that you see in the background of these images, in many cases, are just as important as the, the subject. And that's, that's why I chose to photograph them in this way. So you can see what's going on in the background. You can see the chaos. You can see the intensity of the work that's going on. And in terms, you know, in, in my terms, you know, these photographs never would have been taken without or possible without the cooperation of, you know, the magazines that we were collaborating with, my assistants, my lighting director. Um, and, and from the, as I said, the designer's point of view, you know, the teams, the creatives, the hair and the makeup, the, uh, the hat designers, the jewellery designers, all these people that, that have come together, you know, in one place over a few days or maybe a few months to actually create this theatrical production, which has, you know, hopefully given joy to, to many thousands of people over the years. Backstage fashion photographer Robert Ferrer, speaking with City Lights producer Summer Evans. That interview was recorded in January. And even though the exhibition is no longer on view at Scadfash, you can still see Ferrer's work in the behind the scenes archive section of his website robertferrer.com. Next up is City Light's engineer and contributor, Shelley Canavy. Shelley came to WABE from the Dallas NPR affiliate, KERA, in January of 2019, and she joined us on City Lights in early 2021. Aside from the technical prowess she brings to our team, Shelley also contributes occasional stories for our show. As the loving mother of two fantastic kids, the artistic segments she explores for City Lights tend to highlight family events. In November, Shelley caught up with Josh Rifkin, the founder and executive director of Songs for Kids, an Atlanta organization that provides music mentorship and interactive programs for kids and young adults with illnesses, injuries, and disabilities. Rifkind began by explaining how their foundation uses music to help kids feel like superstars. So at Songs for Kids, we're in our 16th year of playing music, rocking out with kids with illnesses, injuries, and disabilities. And we're often bedside over a thousand times a year with kids in children's hospitals across the country. But we opened our Songs for Kids Center in 2018 which is a pretty magical place where kids and young adults through age 39 can come down. We're right by the Ferris wheel in downtown Atlanta, right by CNN Center. And families can come down and for free, absolutely no charge, kids get weekly 
music mentorship from our really extraordinary Songs for Kids music mentors. And at the Songs for Kids Center, we've got a full recording studio, stage, light, sound, everything you could dream of doing musically. Kids with disabilities and illnesses can take that journey with us. Wow. So who are these mentors? So they're really incredible individuals who are are part of our program. They're actually on board as staff at Songs for Kids. And yeah, they go through our program in terms of what's needed for kids in our community, kids with disabilities, kids with illnesses. I think the empathy and really the energy that these kids deserve. We have just the best people who come in and meet with a family and meet with a kid. And depending on their skill set, like the mentors, we pair them up with what the kids want to do. So if it's a, a a kid that wants to write some songs in the studio, we bring in one of our awesome mentor engineers and producers. It could be someone that wants to learn to sing on the stage. And we have wonderful vocalists and singer-songwriters who are part of the Songs for Kids team. So we really make sure that the kids are getting kind of the the exciting care that they need to, you know, to really actually have a great experience here. Yeah. What is it about music that affects these kids? Like how, how is the music used as therapy? It's so interesting because obviously there's so many ways to, to reach somebody, you know, in this life. Uh, it could be a hug. It could be anything. It could be a smile, laughter, but there's something about music that just cuts through everything. I don't care what language you speak, where you're from, what you're going through, Music just is this incredible glue that that just sticks people together in in the most incredible way. So for me, in terms of this program, music is really just a conduit for us. I think sometimes people think that like I personally, I do have a music background, but that I, I am... I am not the world's greatest music lover. I just love how music can can do what we're doing, can allow somebody to learn something about themselves and, and learn they can be a performer, learn they can express themselves, learn that they can be cheered on. And it's all through this medium of music. I just think that's very cool. I don't, I don't know why, but it just cuts through everything. That's so awesome. So why did you feel like it was important to to start something like the Songs for Kids Foundation? I was always a musician, first of all. And, and I think to say not an incredible one is an understatement. I'll, I'll give myself a little credit. I always had enthusiasm. And, you know, I eventually transferred or transitioned from being a musician to being a music manager. And while I was a music manager, decided really that I was kind of hoping my purpose personally would be for something greater, whatever that might mean to you. I felt like there was a real power to bring people together and have music serve a greater purpose than for super talented artists per se. And this is just an exciting way to bring people together for a a cause. And, And my father is a, or was a surgeon for over 50 years and he was my idol. So I thought, okay, you know, if he's my idol, what could I do to, um, bring all of these elements together, music, him, medicine, you know, how can we, how can we do that in a way that would actually benefit people? This is kind of what, you know, we came up with and, you know, you don't have any idea when you start something, what it will be. In 2007, we did 17 hospital visits, but before the pandemic, we were finally doing over a thousand a year, you know, so big jump, obviously. And then with the center, the Songs for Kids Center, we're now, you know, serving 
kids in sessions that are in the thousands every year. So it's unbelievable how many kids and young adults have been affected by the program. But honestly, it was just trying to do something cool and trying to do something with your skills, whatever skills you have to better the world. But it's a group effort. I mean, it's really extraordinary people behind this thing, incredible mentors, incredible staff. That's what makes it hum. It's not me. It's exciting when you see other people and musicians come into the program and they get to be spectacular and learn that their music is not just about them playing at a bar or a club. They've now realized that they have so much more to give. Wow. Yeah. So you guys do bring musicians to the children in addition to having them learn how to write songs and play drums and sing and perform on stage. You bring musicians to the hospital to sit with these kids, correct, and just play for them? Absolutely. And they sing along and we're at their bedside and we really perform anywhere in the hospitals where the children's hospitals want us. You know, children's hospitals are extraordinary places in and of themselves. So we're lucky just to take part in any way with what they do for the kids. It's nice to be, you know, this exciting add on, you know what I mean? But they, they alone are, these are incredible people. So we're lucky just to be a part of that. So it's exciting. You know, there's a lot of kids, for example, that I met and worked with in the hospital well over a decade ago, and they're now part of the Songs for Kids Center, learning and continuing uh, everything we did at the hospital. So it's really exciting to see many of our kids over a long period of time. Yeah. And you you guys get big names to come play for the kids. I saw like Grace Potter has come. Phoenix, a lot of big names, right? Yeah, it's pretty amazing. We're pretty lucky. Um, <laughs> I'm lucky to have a lot of friendships with a, with a lot of these people. And, and it's great to, to kind of color them into the festivities. It's cool. It's cool to turn them on, you know, to have friends kind of in music who are very successful in their own right for years to kind of come and see what we do. You know what I mean? To kind of, we become the leaders of, of what's going on when they come to visit us. And I think they're honored to take part. And that's kind of nice. You know, they might be used to playing in front of 20,000 people at night, but when they come to to our center, they're the guests, they're the visitors, and they kind of get to learn this musical magic that's happening. And so the kids perform at different events. You guys performed at Shaky Knees earlier this year? Absolutely. We do yeah. that every year. Absolutely. We have a great performances of festivals. You know, we open for a lot of bands. You know, the pandemic obviously stopped a lot of stuff, but we'll open for a lot of artists like, you know, the Revivalists and Lord Huron and uh, Grace Potter and, and many more. It's nice to get back to the action now that people are, are going out again. So we'll, I think you'll see a lot of that, us performing all around, all to raise money for our programs. And, and again, our programs are completely free. In 16 years, we've never charged a family a penny. And they families come into my office and they say, okay, what's the charge? And I say, you know, there is no charge. Like, it, it's really an incredible thing, this free programming that these kids get. Josh Rifkind, the executive director of the Songs for Kids Foundation, speaking with City Lights engineer and contributor Shelley Canavy. Coming up... We'll continue our Producers Picks show and listen to producer Janine Etter immersed in the world of Claude Monet. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. 
The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. If you are just joining us, today is our first annual Producers Picks show, highlighting the work of City Lights producers Summer Evans and Janine Etter, Engineer Shelley Canavy and senior producer Kim Droves. Now it's time for a story from our newest City Lights producer, Janine Etter, who joined our team in September. Janine is an award-winning professional who came to us with years of experience, most recently from... Berkeley's KPFA Radio. Berkeley's loss has been City Lights gain, and Janine took on her first interview after having been on the team for barely a month. When the Claude Monet Immersive Experience opened at the Exhibition Hub Art Center in Doraville in October, Janine spoke with the curator, Mario Iacampo. Here, he explains why he thought Monet was the right choice for this experience. You know, when, you, when we went through the process of choosing which artists would, would best fit the, this medium of immersive experiences, you know, we quickly got to a very short list of people like Monet, Van Gogh, Klimt, and and in Monet in particular, Monet painted many, many landscapes, painted many landscapes at different points of the day because of his fascination with lighting. And so I think that he's a bit of a natural, you know, you're always looking, obviously, when we're creating an exhibit, uh, we're always looking for an artist that has a certain, should we say, following or notoriety or, or reason why he's important. And I think with Monet, the, the advent of photography, when everybody was talking about, well, there'll be no more, what do we need artists anymore? We can just go and take a picture. I think he proved, he proved that wrong completely because the art and pictures are two completely different things. Even though when you look at Monet's work, you see the influences of, of photography because before him, it was unthinkable to cut a scene. But you know, when you look at his, Monet's paintings, the front, part of a rowboat is cut off or there's only half a building much like you would have in a photography but this with him it's in a painting but fundamentally you know he was a very interesting person uh, he was a prolific painter painted over 3,000 paintings and he, and he studied 
which I think is always interesting with an artist when, when they study a subject and they paint it over and over. And, and Van Gogh did the same thing, but Monet did it his own way by doing over and over at 10 in the morning, at 11 in the morning, at noon, at one. You know, when you look at his cathedral in Rouen, and you see the different times of the day that he painted it, it really gives you a, a greater appreciation of the scene he was painting. I think that all those things together, I think, brought us to, to choose Monet. And Monet was prolific. And you mentioned quite a few of his works, but out of his over 2,000 works of art, how did you decide which works to include? Well, you know, when we, when we start with an artist, from a creative perspective, we're always looking at his life and how did he move in his life? What influenced him? And, and really from there, then you start to have an idea of the important works in his art. The first 20, 25 pieces of art to include in the, in the immersive experience, because at the end, there's, over, there's well over 400 paintings represented in one form or another throughout the experience. And so when you, you arrive at, at the 20 to 25, and in, in Van Gogh's case, you've got the Nymphia series, you know, he's, the bridges, Venice, you know, with San Maggiore, uh, London. And, and you, you arrive at, uh, at the critical junctures, if you want, of his life, and, and you start to build a story. Then the next level is really you're, you're choosing paintings that complement the storyline so that you can go from one era to the other. Like in Monet's case, we focused very much on two elements to tell the story. One was lighting in the different parts of it because it was so important in his life. Two was his voyages. I mean, he traveled everywhere to, take, to paint. He went to Norway, so we have scenes with snow. He went to London and you have the fog. He went to Bretagne and you have the, the large rock formations. He went to Southern France. Obviously, when you talk about Monet, you can't not talk about his garden at Giverny or his house at Giverny. What was really interesting about his house in Giverny is when you see pictures of these brilliant blues and brilliant yellows, I mean, shocking colors of, his, of the different rooms, which have, really have nothing to do with the paintings uh, that he was painting, which I, which I think tells you a little bit about the person. And then the Venice scene. So we, so we, we decided what we were going to do with, with Monet is, yes, focus on, on his major works, but tell it from the perspective of his voyages. And you mentioned some of it just now when you were speaking, but if you could elaborate a little and tell us about Monet's style and, and how it changed the world of art. Well, what's always fascinating when you look at an artist's style for me is you often find that one of handicap that the artist had becomes a force for the artist. And I've got two, two great examples for that. One is with Van Gogh, where he was somewhat colorblind. And so it led to these brilliant colors that he used, which, which really weren't real. But, you know, they weren't really what he was seeing. He was enriching it. With Monet, Monet had cataracts. And so a lot of his work, when you, when you see him, he would have to go back and forth between the scene, walk back to the painting. And, and I think that that handicap, if you want to call it that, helped him develop a style of, of things not being clear, if you want, you know, of these scenes of, 
of the colors blending one into the other, which I think that really is what, for me, sets Monet apart is when I, when I look at his colors and how they blend one into the other and how you have to almost stand back a little bit to see the definition. As When you get really close, it's like, it's almost looked like being, being too close to a television set where it's not clear. When you stand back a little bit, you really, the, the colors really come to life. And I think that those are the, I think the things that influenced our, our storyline, if you want. And what was the impact of his painting outdoors? Well, from a technical perspective also, he came at an era where the, the base of the painting of the paint could be used outdoor, wasn't influenced by dust. So he could paint directly what he saw, as opposed to having to sketch and then go home. So really when he sat outside and he did, you know, again, I come back to Rouen because it's a, it's a really interesting study in, in light and color and time of day, you know, he could stay in the same place and paint at different times of day from this exact same perspective. So I think, I think it encouraged and it nourished to some extent in, in his style of being outdoor, because he did, you know, like unlike a lot, of, a lot of other artists, he did very few portraits of himself or of other people. And even in some of the letters that he wrote to Clemenceau, which was the prime minister at the time, and he wrote to him often, they exchanged letters, he would always say how annoyed he was at people. He would always say that how annoyed he was that somebody came to visit because it really bothered them and it really slowed down his work. So he was really a, a person focused on the outdoor and on his paintings. And he was able to, because he was also financially, you know, he was one of those artists that even during that era was able to sell enough paintings to live on, you know, and live out very well, as opposed to some of, some of the other artists where you find out they were paupers and, and people, people later on made money, but the artist himself did. But in, in Monet's case, he lived, you know, he was uh, commercially successful. So it allowed him to travel and do, and even when he traveled, he was always outdoor. If you look at any of the series of his paintings, he wasn't traveling to go inside a church to paint. He was traveling to do some majority from the outside. He was traveling to do the parliament in London, but from the outside. So I think that the outdoor uh, landscape element was a major force and a major source of motivation for him. And you talked about it earlier, Photography was invented around the time Monet was born, roughly 1839, and, and some saw this new technology as a threat. That would phase out paintings. However, Monet's idea seemed to be focused on capturing the essence of what can't be expressed in a photograph. How would you describe Monet and other contemporary artists of his time being impacted by the invention of photography? I think um, the light is a huge influence because it's because light is also so important in photography. But the step that goes way beyond photography, especially in his era, is the layering that you can do with a painting and the interpretation that you can do with your brush strokes that you couldn't do with a photography. I mean, yeah, today with Photoshop, you can do all kinds of things. But back then, the photography was, uh, was what you saw, really. So even though there's a feeling of influence. It's not a photograph because of its richness. It's like, um, you know, all the artists of his time were all influenced by Japanese prints because there was a huge Japanese prints exhibit 
in France, in Paris, and they all went to see this and they, because they'd never seen anything like this. And so in their own way, they were all influenced, you know, with Monet, he dwelled into the, the whole notion of the, the, the nymphia, the garden, the Japanese bridges, even though he didn't paint like a, a Japanese print per se, he, he bought a huge collection of Japanese prints. And, you know, his style was influenced not by the, um, this notion of 2D, 3D stamps that came from Japan, but he was definitely influenced when you see what he built in his backyard. You know, he had over 20 bridges in his backyard. You know, we always see a picture, we always see a painting with one bridge, but you have to remember he had over 20 bridges so he could paint different bridges at different times of the day, depending where the sun was. And it had huge Japanese components in there that he painted in his own style. So I think that he was influenced by photography. He was influenced by Japanese, but not in the sense of copying what they did or reproducing what they did, but in the sense of inspiring a new way of presenting that art. And what more can you tell us about the influence of Japanese art on Monet? I mean, the, um, the artists of the time were blown away, if you want, because it was so foreign to all the traditional techniques that had been taught and developed in Europe for hundreds of years. And here comes this idea that you could do a series of flat patterns, put them one in front of the other, much like a theater would do with set pieces and develop this notion of 3D depth, even though it's really very flat. And in Monet's case, I mean, he even speaks about it in some of the letters, in one of the letters to Clemenceau, he says, you know, I went and saw this and it was like, he says, I didn't know at first what to make of it because it was so inspiring. And he went home and started to paint, if you want, Again, Japanese influence content in Japan, the influence of flowers and petals, you know, and, and you look at Monet's paintings, there's flowers everywhere. Uh, even though there may not be the exact same flowers, it's really an influence on, on what he was seeing coming out of Japan, even though at first glance, it doesn't look like a Japanese stamp. Like some of the other artists, you know, like Van Gogh or Klimt, or Degas, you know, you look at some of their, paint, their paintings, it looks like a copy of a Japanese stamp. You can tell, clearly influenced. I think the, the influence on Monet was more on how it influenced his view of content. And I think that that led then to, to all the, the nymphias and the Jap, you know, I mean, he painted countless number of nymphias and countless number of bridges. And when you look really close, it's never the same you know, you have a series from the same area that he was looking at them, but then you look at the next series, and you could tell, okay, he wasn't at the same place if you look really close. So I think that the influence from Jap the Japanese, if you want, to the Occidental started really, I think, with the influence of these artists and each one, how each one was influenced. Like I said, with Monet, he was more influenced in their content and how he could then create his own content while incorporating what he saw, not so much recreating what he saw. 
And you use the word edutainment, coined by hip-hop artist KRS-One, to describe one of the many goals of your organization in creating these experiences. Can you please explain what, what you mean by that term, edutainment? I guess education and entertainment. So for us, especially when we're doing an exhibit like an, a major artist, what we're trying to do is expose the audience to more uh, of the artist that they might maybe have a small interest in the artist, but I think through the experience, expose the audience through the life of the artist. I think that that's the, the education part. The entertainment part, I think what we try and do is the perspective, if you want, is you work all week. So we want you to be entertained while learning without having to work for it. We try and expose the artist to the audience through context. Maria Iacampo, curator of the Claude Monet Immersive Experience, speaking with City Lights producer Janine Etter. The experience continues at the new Exhibition Hub Art Center in Doraville through February of 2023. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we'll finish up our Producers Picks show and revisit the time when senior producer Kim Drobes learned how the combination of Star Wars and chess could raise money for charity. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Great to have you along. If you've just tuned in, we're wrapping up our first annual Producers Picks show. Highlighting the work of City Lights producers Summer Evans and Janine Etter, engineer Shelley Kanavi, and senior producer Kim Drobes. Kim is the queen of quirky and an amazing talent as a producer. She joined City Lights as senior producer in May of 2021, bringing with her decades of experience in Atlanta radio and a deep passion for our city's underground art and music scenes. Her choice for our Producers Picks program reflects her love of nerd culture and her desire to shine light into the unusual corners of our city. Here's Kim's story from this year's Dragon Con. Well, Dragon Con 2022 has come and gone, and this year saw 65,000 guests flood downtown Atlanta with the joy of cosplay and fandom. More than $190,000 were raised for this year's chosen charity, which was Open Hand Atlanta, and about 3,000 of those dollars came directly from the efforts of 22-year-old Steven Eisenhower, also known as the Chess Jawa. 
For the unfamiliar, Jawas are from the world of Star Wars, and they're searchers and resellers of discarded scrap and wayward mechanicals. They're about three feet tall, and their faces are completely hidden behind rough hand-woven robes, with the exception of their glowing yellow eyes. Over the last 11 years, I've consistently noticed a particular Jawa at DragonCon, one that sits at a table with a sign that reads, Play Chess with a Jawa. This year, I decided to approach the Jawa and began by asking, what makes a Jawa better at chess than most other beings? I can translate for him. Long nights in the sand crawler. That was Peggy Eisenhower translating for me, proud mom to Steven Eisenhower, a.k.a. the Chess Jawa. Some people are mother of dragons. I'm mother of Jawa. Peggy explained that it all started 11 years ago when Stephen was a little too young to enjoy the convention panels with his older brother. So his parents made a suggestion. We said, well, look, if you're bored in the panels, we said, just set your chessboard up outside. People will play you. And so he did. And we came back, you know, an hour or so later after a panel. And he's sitting there and he's got money. Oh. And I'm like, Stephen, why do you have money? And he said, well, I don't know. People just tipped me. And he said, well, I thought I'd donate it to the charity. You know, it was like $14. So the next year he decided he'd wear his Star Wars costume. He was just a kid and he had a little Jawa costume. And he put out a little tip jar and he raised, you know, a couple hundred dollars for the charity. It was 11. And so the chest Jawa was born. This is his 10th year doing it. His goal this year is $3,000. And that's how it is. So it's 10 years and people, I mean, it's such a generous community. And so many of the people here have seen him every year because we're always in the same spot and they've watched him grow up. And so the number of people that come up to me and say, oh, we're so glad to see you again. How's he doing? How's school? And now he's in college at the University of Chicago. I mean, it's fabulous, right? I mean, he does what he loves. He's got passion. You know, it's that intersection of cosplay and philanthropy and chess and what's not to love? Peggy's pride is absolutely palatable, and she used her motherly persuasion to get the Jawa to chat with me for a moment as her actual son, Stephen. It's always nice because people come back and they're like, oh, you know, I first played you five or six years ago, and, you know, I see you every year at con. You know, the costume can be kind of brutal to wear. You know, I'm usually here, you know, approximately 10 to 6, so it's, it's long, but, you know, it's nice because, you know, I'm here, people recognize me, and I just get to play chess, so. When asked about the Jawa's win rate, neither mother nor son held back. So I win basically all, basically all of the games. Um, I lose maybe one or two games a year. At this point, I've been playing chess competitively since I was 10. I'm a chess expert at this point. So far this year, he's played 160 games, uh, and he's lost one. Usually, over the course of the whole weekend, he will play between 200 and 250 games, and he will lose one or two. Some years he doesn't lose any. There, are, you know, he's got friends who play chess, um, and he's got friends who do Star Wars. But we really, there's not a lot of overlap there. Yeah. Um, he is the one and only chess Jawa. Before parting ways with the Eisenhower family, I asked one last question of the Jawa that, if you're a Star Wars fan like me, you might be curious to know. So as a Jawa, is it difficult not to try and steal the pieces off of the chessboard as you're playing? 
I don't think that requires translation. <laughs> that was Stephen Eisenhower and his mom, Peggy, speaking with City Light senior producer Kim Drobes. More information about the Chess Jawa can be found on our website, wabe.org. That wraps up our first annual Producers Picks show. I hope you enjoyed today's program as much as I enjoy working with these talented professionals here on City Lights. WABE's daily exploration of art and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., you're invited to Itzhak Perlman's Hanukkah radio party. The great violinist tells the story of the Jewish Festival of Lights and shares his favorite recordings for the holiday, some serious, some silly. He is a master storyteller as well as a brilliant musician. City Lights will return on Tuesday with commentary on Afrofuturism and the role of women in Wakanda forever from two esteemed professors at Georgia Tech. Plus, a look at the new hands-on sensory experience in Buckhead the Slumu Institute. City Light senior producer is Kim Trobes. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at W-A-B-E City Lights on both Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.